Hey there, Kevin here, and today on Philly Who, we are actually going to be bringing you the story of Todd Carmichael, who created La Colombe, and who also almost died trekking by himself across Antarctica. This is one of the craziest stories that I have heard as an interviewer to date, and when this story originally aired on Philly Who, it actually was broken up into two parts. It was two episodes, part one and part two. Today, we've actually gone ahead and taken both of those episodes, put them together, edited a little bit for brevity, and today we present to you all at once the story of Todd Carmichael, as recorded in June of 2018. Please enjoy. listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name's Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Todd Carmichael, the co-founder and CEO of La Colombe Coffee Roasters. La Colombe was founded as a small cafe in Rittenhouse in 1994, and today features 30 cafes across the country. Todd also invented the canned draft latte, which in only one year was found in 60% of all U.S. stores. In addition to being a coffee whisperer, Todd is also a renowned explorer who's hosted a show on the Travel Channel and holds the world record for the fastest solo trek to the South Pole. And now it's getting to be 100 below, so the sat phones go down, the stove's barely working because you've, you've climbed up to 14,000 feet too. And you're just seeing this thing and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to die in view of the pole. In this episode, you'll hear how Todd discovered his love of coffee and of world travel by working at a startup that you've probably heard of. So I found this job dragging grain sacks around in a warehouse. But on the names of these sacks were Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda. And that was a little company that had three cafes. It was 1982 and it was called Starbucks. And in this first episode of a two-part series, you'll hear what it was like to open La Colombe in Rittenhouse in the mid-90s when coffee shops really weren't a thing. Oh, back then it was terrible. I mean, everyone came in with this look like they felt sorry for us. They would go, what do you mean? There's no salads, no chili, there's no soups. They're like, no, we have coffee. All this and more about Todd Carmichael, his record-setting trek of Antarctica, and the beginnings of La Colombe Coffee, right now on Philly Who. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin. Stay tuned. Just a heads up, there is a little bit of cursing. Actually, there's a lot of cursing. So, you've been warned. So before Todd Carmichael became a successful CEO, a world-class explorer, and a reality TV star, he was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, not too far away from Seattle. There, he would be introduced to coffee by working for early-stage Starbucks in a warehouse. This time was so impactful for him because it gave him a glimpse of the big, exciting world outside of his home. Until that point, he lived with his single mother, who had him at a very young age, and raised him without the presence of Todd's father, who Todd wouldn't even meet until years after his birth. I saw him for the very first time when I was about 11, and I saw him on TV. He was on a game show. It was just before passing, and it was like bowling for furniture or something. It was the craziest thing. I, my mom she brought me to this little black and white TV I'll always remember. And she pointed at it. I said, hey, that, that man has grandpa's name. And she said, that's your father. 
And then uh, because of that show, they got in contact again, and I was able to meet my dad. Uh, then years later, he, you know, he, he took his own life. He, he really suffered from the mind, and there was, um, there was just a turning point where he couldn't come back. Yeah. Did that situation, do you think that situation affected, I guess, your life trajectory at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, at 55 and as a father, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about things like that. But, you know, when you look back, you realize, yeah, I mean, it, it, it shapes you into a different person. Uh, you know, first, you know, you, quote unquote, become the man of the house at a very young age. I became a provider for my mother at a very young age. It, it, it required that I be more responsible than people around me. Um, it also makes you a person who's always searching for that reference. You know, you're, you're not really sure how these things are done, so you have to discover on your own. So you're always reading and you're always looking for a hero, I guess, or you're looking for this kind of mosaic that you're creating that would become that father figure um, or that man that you want to emulate. Right? right. What were the pieces of the mosaic for you? I mean, you know, early in my in my life, it was always heroes like Shackleton and all these men, these mountain climbers were that explorers, uh, um, I, you know, all the way from, you know, Champlain all the way through. I admired the bravery and the tenacity and the discipline, the endurance of of explorers. And then came scientists. So I had that, I added that. And then I just added people as I kept coming and I made this, you know, snowman, if you will out of uh, pieces and parts of my heroes. Yeah. So it sounds like your mother was a pretty strong figure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it true that she gave you your love of adventure and exploration? No, I think I'm the, the complete opposite of my mother. Uh, my mother is a very anxious person, actually. And uh, she's never left her hometown. Uh, that's not true because I've, I've forced her to travel with me and I, a couple of times. I, I put her on a cruise and I think she loves the idea, but not the act of, um, you know, she, you know, she was born and raised in a completely different environment in a, in a different time. Um, she always, she inspired me to go explore my world, but didn't do it herself. Um, you know, she's, she's, she's afraid of the world and, uh, and I just never was. Yeah. So when you were 15 years old, you, correct me if I'm wrong, ran a marathon and summited Mount Rainier? Yeah, that was a big year for me. I got super grounded for the Rainier thing. Um, <laughs> you got grounded? Yeah, I didn't tell my mom I was doing it. <laughs> oh my gosh. The, uh, and you know, I learned in short order that, you know, at altitude, clear skies mean you're going to burn your skin. But I never thought that I would have to bring sunblock on a glacier. You know, this was before the internet or and I didn't have access to the climbing books or anything. Um, and I just had the rudimentary gear and I burned the crap out of my face. There's no way I could talk my way out of that one. The, uh, so mom found out and I got grounded forever. Um, the marathoning was fine. I mean, she supported that. Yeah. Um, the desert trekking, uh, she supported that. But she just didn't want me on top of mountains. Gotcha. So that was the line. It was the altitude. It wasn't the, <laughs> the line. Yeah. Well, I just, what it meant was that I, I jumped on a Greyhound bus. I made it down to Paradise Camp. Finally, I hitchhiked to a like, good distance. And I set camp for two days. And I made friends with some other hikers. And uh, they knew the path. And, well, they were, they were hippies. They were the greatest guys. 
And I followed him all the way up to the summit and came back down. And I was, you know, five or six days late getting home. So you, you tend to get in trouble. Yeah. And there was no cell phones. I was supposed to be, quote unquote, staying at like Tommy's house. Yeah. <laughs> but from the top of that mountain, I could see the rest of my life. I knew exactly what I wanted to do from the top of that mountain. This, this is what I want. What's this? What I want to do is I want to, I want to not stay within the definition of the person that I'm supposed to remain. You know, I'm a poor kid from a shitty town in a part of this, in the States that no one cares about. And I didn't want to fucking stay there. And I realized that if you just didn't accept the limitations, you know, there were the people who did things and then the people who don't do things. And, you know, I look across America and, and I can identify with what with, with some of these people are feeling that I, I just didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to stay where I was born. And I didn't want to stay with the definition of who I was. And I was defined as the son of a suicide and, you know, a young single mom in a shitty place in America. That's who I was supposed to be the rest of my life. And I realized at the time of that mountain, I wasn't going to fucking be that guy. I wasn't going to be him. So at what point did you discover your love of coffee? Well, you know, first, I guess coffee found me, you know, and then I found coffee. The, you know, when I went to Seattle, I decided when I was 15 that I was going to go to college. And this, it's, I know it sounds silly, but this isn't the kind of thing that people talked about. Where that I was an actual right. decision back then. It really was. It was, and it was not one that was really supported by many people. You know, it was... In that area of the world, it was like, I know a million PhDs are flipping hamburgers and what are they going to teach you that we can't teach you? And it's a real slight to do that. And it's, it's really going against, against the grain, like, again, like climbing a mountain or running a marathon too young. Um, but I made that decision and there was no way I could afford it. So I knew I needed to do it through athletics. And that's where distance running came in. So finally, University of Washington, Seattle, my, the university I hoped to go to not only let me in, but paid for my school. And, but I didn't have enough money for, you know, the extras. So I needed a job and I couldn't serve food or I couldn't interact with people. I mean, I, I didn't know any, I wasn't qualified to do anything but farm work. Right. So I found this job dragging grain sacks around in a warehouse, but on the names of these sacks were Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, Tanzania, Brazil, Colombia, and they were coffee bags. And they, they meant the world to me. It was just like, Again, being on that mountain again, I could see even further. I were touching things that were from the world in this big city of Seattle. And that was a little company that had three cafes. It was 1982 and it was called Starbucks. And they gave me my start. I didn't do much more than just drag bags around. And, but when I was going to school, I was studying business. I wrote a business plan. It was, it was about making the next generation coffee company and I would call it La Colombe. And that's where we are. So it sounds like, so this is kind of surprising to me. It was more that coffee was the ticket to the world than the actual, like the taste and the beverage itself. Right. I mean, it was, I was just, well, see, I want this thing I understood was agriculture. I understood seeds and I understood metal mechanics. And I love the intersection of seeds and mechanics that I understand. That's a farm concept. Like how do you apply diesel motors and welded iron to agriculture and create something? But then ultimately it opened this bigger door, which is the long view, which is I, I could see this landscape that included more than just my state, but included more than just my country that included Africa and Central South America and Asia. So 
that was the big grabber. And then when you're working something, you realize as you're moving forward that this shit isn't done. There's so much more left here. So there was space for my inventive mind. There was space to say, all right, there's, there's the next generation and I want to make that next generation. Yeah. Is that where you met your Lacolum co-founder, JP? That's right. Yeah, man. We both had fake IDs. You know, I had a huge <laughs> head of hair. And see, when I left my hometown, it was very country Western, you see. And I never really got to hear rock and roll. Like, not, you know, I heard old school rock and roll, but this new sound, punk, like, you know, like these bands like, you know, that were kind of Queen-esque and like, yeah. And so I immediately fell in love with the music scene in Seattle. And I was at a bar, me and JP, I met JP at a bar. It was just, we were waiting for this band called Green River to play. And Green River then became Pearl Jam, you know, the lead singer died. So this was, this is like bass, guitar and drum and screaming and just insane, like rusty, like undercurrent, underground rock and roll in a bar that the beer came in cans because they didn't trust anyone with glasses, right? <laughs> and this guy comes in with a, a gold shiny vest, like he's kind of like on Sha Na Na, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he orders a uh, champagne at the bar and that was Jean-Philippe. And I said, dude, are you that Jean? I said, are you Jean-Pierre, that, that roaster at Torrefazione Italia? And he goes, yeah, my name is Jean-Philippe. And we became fast and Best friends then and that was like 1984 85 80, okay yeah. so so that's 84 85 locker first shop was in 1994 that's in right. Rittenhouse. so mm-hmm. did you spend some time with jp just vibing about coffee or is that when you went and just sort of went on your own and traveled the world yeah so yeah i spent some time finished my degree uh, i did a little bit of i, I studied tax law so I, I needed to do a little bit of that i did for a big firm you know, wore the red tie to work. And I, you know, I wanted to taste what that world was like. Uh, Did you not like the taste? I didn't. No, because I knew it wasn't, you know, I knew, see, every farm kid or every kid like me that goes to college, they treat it like a vocational school. You can't, you can't go and just study something because you want to better yourself, uh, which I kind of regret. But, um, you know, you just get set up with this idea that you're going to, you're going to go through this experience and you're going to get one shot to get a job that you can provide for a family. Right. And so I thought tax law, that's really hard. I love doing hard shit. And so, and I did it and I practiced it, but I didn't like who I was. And I didn't, I knew that there was that world out there, you know, and taking a week holiday for the rest of my life wasn't going to be enough. So I jacked in my job and a week later I landed in France. And then four days after that, I was standing in Addis Ababa looking for farms, man. Wow. So you went back to farming? I went to farming, yeah. I spent all my time for the next four and a half, five years doing odd jobs. I lived on a little sailboat in the south of France. So basically, I was homeless, right? <laughs> and the, uh, but, you know, I was tan and then everyone, you know, didn't treat me like a homeless. And I socked $97,250 away. And I came back to the United States with a suitcase and some traveler's checks looking for my city. Yeah. And you wound up in Philly. I did, yeah. So you've been said in interviews that you were looking for a city that needed you. That's right. Yeah, that's, the, that's not a canned answer. I mean, there were some other ingredients that you look for. And then I think I try to fill in maybe after the fact. But realistically, like, oh, I was looking for a, 
you know, I don't know, like distribution routes to blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, man, I needed a city and I wanted a city that needed me back. It's just basics. You know, I always return to the basics. Like if it doesn't sound like a human relationship, it's probably not going to work. So I wasn't going to go and fall in love with this city and give a shit about me and didn't need me. So I was looking for one that needed me and Philly did, I think at the time. Yeah. What made you think that Philly needed you? Well, at first there were no cafes. And at this point, you know that you want to start a coffee. A coffee oh yeah. Company. Oh yeah. I've come to start La Colombe. Yeah. I mean, that's the name. You've already got the name. You oh yeah. Wrote that up when you were working at Starbucks. I traveled all the way through Italy and we found a roaster there that we, we bought and we found the, the espresso machines, the grinders, the equipment. We knew exactly the business plan. Everything was set. We just needed to find a home now. And, um, yeah, when I got to Philly, I knew right away, this is it, man. This is it. I, I walked the whole city like a grid all the way up to the numbers, I think to like about, you know, just all, from river to river. Yeah. And, um, I said, this is the, this is it. And the next thing was to convince my French, you know, partner and I was living in France. He was living in Seattle, which is kind of ironic. It's but, funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he was, uh, just, he studied to be a pilot. And he was just months away from becoming a pilot for, I think, Air France. And I told him, yeah, you don't want to fly a bus for your, for your life. You don't want to fly a bus. You know, you want to take on the world. And, and um, we'd, uh, we finally got here. I convinced him of everything. And I always remember it was on uh, the, there was the thing that was like where Peacock Alley is. There's this old Irish pub just right on the parkway there. So I said, come on, come on in. So we went in there and we had two black and tans and, uh, by, by each, by the end of the second one, yeah, I go, you ready? And he goes, okay, I'm fucking in. And three weeks later, I was moved here. Wow, so it only took two beers. <laughs> only two beers. We might have been, you know, I'm, I've been bothering him all day long about it, but he saw he saw what I saw, you know. And you got to remember, this is a time, I mean, Rittenhouse, if you walked across Rittenhouse in the dark, people would think that you were like a daredevil. Uh, you know, crack cocaine was prevalent. Uh, homelessness was a problem. The suburbs were afraid of Center City. Uh, Chestnut was just, a, it was boarded up. Walnut was half boarded up. You know, it was, it wasn't the city it is today, but, but you knew, you look at the bones and you look at the city, you knew, man, this is, we're touch bottom. There's only one way out that we're going to fly out of this thing. So I'm sure that people came up to you as you're opening the shop at, on like 19th Street near Rittenhouse where nobody is. There's no coffee shops. Mm -mm. And they probably said, what are you doing? Why oh, are yeah. you here? What would you tell them in those days? Oh, back then it was terrible. I mean, everyone came in with this look like they felt sorry for us. Um, like we tried so hard because we did. We built out the cafe ourselves. And, and they looked at us like, oh, it's such a shame because this is going to end in like 90 days. You know, it's 25 years now and it seems yeah. to be doing all right, you know. And, but people were really confused. Like the, the cafe concept hadn't come or it's just a coffee shop, right? They would go, what do you mean? There's no salads, no chili, there's no soups. We're like, no, like no burgers, no like hoagies. We're like, no, we have coffee. And it just hurt their brains. And then they would, everyone had the same questions. I mean, you probably know that in La Colombe cafes, there are no menus, right? Because two months in, I, we had a menu in the original cafe. I just literally during service, I reached up and just ripped it off the wall and threw it into the back room. It was Why? just big because everybody would come up to me and they would look up and I would stare at their throats with them looking up the sign. They would go, so what's a latte? 
what's a cappuccino? I just, it would take you minutes. Everybody had to go through the whole menu to have to describe what these things were. These people literally didn't know what these were, right? And so when I ripped it down, they would come up and I would say, I don't know what to have. I go, do you want something special? I would say the same thing. And then I'd make a latte or a cappuccino. I go, this is a cappuccino. They drink it and then they would always drink that. I go, do you want something? Do you like chocolate? Great. This is a mocha. And I would just make them whatever. One by one, teaching Philadelphia about the finer points of coffee. That's it. And man, it didn't take long. Like by four months, there was a line out the door. Wow. And it's been there ever since. Was there a specific moment where you thought, holy crap, this is really, really happening? Yeah, because, all right, so you got to remember, I rented a place at 13th and Lombard for $140. It was a little, I had a little futon and a hot plate. And then you had three towers that were the projects. So 13th and Lombard was like a real tough, tough neighborhood, but cheap. And so, and JP, the same thing. Um, so we figured that our break even was like $350. We'd like, we could survive if we could make $350. I mean, really a day. Wow. And we did like 380. So day one, we're like, yeah, fuck, we made it. God, we're going to survive. I was like, and then, you know, now it's that, that takes 20 minutes. You know, it's like, yeah, it's just no like, time. yeah, the, uh, but I knew right then that we'd had something, but I think that any entrepreneur who's worked that hard to get to that place, you have this sense of inevitability. You just think you, there's never any slight atom in you that goes, oh my God. So there's never this elation when you've you've gone over the hump because it's it was written it's what you saw it's what was written yeah it's written it's just there it's all of it's there and so it's it's just like a script you skipped ahead you saw what's going to happen and you read to that point you're not surprised so we never really never really felt that i mean there were surprises later on i'm i'm like today i'm surprised by what by la colombe yeah by me by where it's all yeah just by yeah just by how i've evolved how the company's evolved it's there's there's a point it's like forecasting weather you know there's a point you just can't do it anymore because too many variables and one little butterfly you know and it's 25 years in i i mean i would never have thought well you know you know your esquire magazine's man of the year you've got a world record you had three years of tv uh You've invented the fastest growing beverage in the United States of America. You have 30 cafes, 1,000. There's just fucking no way. It's like, it's like just, I just, I have four amazing children. I landed the most amazing wife and I, I lived a charmed life. It's just, I, I, I never really thought that it could be this good. Yeah. So six years after the first shop opens, it's 2000. Yeah. You decided to take a trip. Nigigia. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. So yeah, I'm glad you yeah. took that. But yeah, so this is where you just wanted to jump into an indigenous tribe and yeah, see how they did it. So why? Yeah, like 2000. I mean, I think you recall it was America was in, you know, it was in a tough place. And I personally was in a tough place. Yeah, it's, I, I needed to I needed to exercise something in me. Yeah. What was the tough place? Yeah, you know, relationships. There was, uh, you know, I had a failed marriage, uh, and that was hard on me. I mean, because that's just not how I viewed myself. The, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm slightly crazy myself. I had to learn how to deal with my own insanities, but like legitimately, you know, like see, my mom suffers from the brain too. So there's just a lot. So 
what I wanted to do is, one, I wanted to surf some of the biggest waves in the world, coral waves. I wanted to jack. I want to know what it's like to have like a train car fall on you. You know, it was just, it was just because the shore here is great. There's, I've surfed smaller waves in Central America, but I wanted to have a beast fall on me, right? And then, and then learn how to ride it. Um, and I wanted to go back in time. You know, like some people, you know, they can find that in meditation or they can find that in reading, but I wanted to go back in time. And so I found this little village uh, in the South Pacific in the middle of freaking nowhere, population 180, uh, maybe 180. Uh, everyone makes their own homes and everyone fishes their own food and there's no kept animals. Uh, there's no roads. You hack through a jungle and and uh, I lived there for, I think, three months, right? How did you find this place? First, I found the wave, and then I found ah, the island. Yeah. Okay. The wave's called King Kong, and it's called King Kong for a freaking reason. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, my God. The first time you see it, you're sitting on its shoulder. You just feel like, yeah, it's like, you know that three feet away is like stepping into a jet stream. It's like, oh, my God, the most violent <laughs> beast on the world. And I spent time drifting, uh, I spent time surfing, and I came back with a clearer idea about where I should take myself and my company. Yeah, uh, so what sort of lessons did you learn while, while living there? Was there any perspective yeah. change that you particularly remember happening? Yeah, I think, you know, I think you realize that the center of your life and the center of your company uh, is people. It's the human, it's the human element. And that helped in creating the company because you, you know, but legitimate, legitimately putting people at the very center. And then you surround that with innovation and curiosity. Um, you always add a, a degree of adventure to it. And then ultimately what you can learn about people who live in nature is that it's also about the planet. And I came back and I would never buy any coffee from that point on. There wasn't shade grown. There wasn't, I mean, it really shifted my thinking about coffee and it re-upped my interest in making sure that people were at the center. Um, I knew always that I would always be an activist CEO. I mean, that's kind of who I am. I'm, I'm a pain in the ass for that reason, but it kind of restoked that engine. And then it also reminds you that you have many lives. Like there was... There was the life, there was, you know, I mean, if you have, let's say a failed marriage or you, you fail at something and, and you know, that, 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 that's important to you, that you remember that you have multiple lives because by month three, living with, you know, in a sarong, right? And surfing hard, this was a different life now. I couldn't even remember the guy anymore. So it occurred to me that, yeah, you, you have the opportunity to reset the stakes and, and restart anytime you want. And so I did. So the way you applied these lessons when you returned was change your sourcing, right? Yeah, there was just a lot of stuff. You know, it wasn't that I marched back and said, you know, this is uh, what I've decided while away. And, but it, it just, you know, it, it changed my spirit in a way that I started looking at the world a little differently. And it was an important phase. Um, you know, early on in the company, JP and I worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day too, you know, which is not great on relationships. It also taught me how to continue to be a beast like I am, like I still work like an animal, but how to stop working. Mm. And I needed to learn that because 
you know, 15 years old when I decided I was going to be an all-American distance runner. I was going to go to the University of Washington. I was going to, I had never stopped a day, ever, never stopped. And then those three months, I think it was actually four even, might have been four months, I was forced to stop. I'd fished all the fish, I've surfed all the waves, the tide's out, there's fuck all to do. Guess what? It's just you. Okay, you're going to stop now, right? And it, it taught me how to stop. Can you remember a particular day or time in that period where you kind of, it kind of struck you and you looked around and said, wow, it's great to stop. <laughs> yeah. Or it's, it's even, it is, okay, because it kind of relates to something else. Antarctica is that you can stop, but it doesn't mean you're stopped. There is the moment when you realize, oh my God, I've stopped. And that's, I'm not, I'm, I, the engines aren't full speed ahead. Like I can sit on a sofa and read a newspaper and be at full speed. But can you sit on a sofa and be at zero speed? It's a very hard thing when you've been running from things or running at things or your whole life. You know, when I'll jump to another thing and like, when everyone asks me like, how hard was it? The hardest part about walking across Antarctica, let's say you get there and you survive, you live, okay? The hardest part is once you've hit the pole, because for two months you've been there's on the ice, 14 hours pulling a 300 pound sled uphill. There's a chant in your mind is saying, go, 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 right? Every second, every second is used. And when you touch it, what happens is the voice keeps saying, go, go, but there's nowhere to go. And it go, does that for four or five more months. Even when you're stopped, you're not stopped. So it's that learning how to stop that fucking voice. And right? Yeah. And the gigia was the very first time the voice stopped. And I was like, oh God, oh shit. And it took maybe a month and a half for it to stop it. Right. Maybe two. Yeah. So let's talk about Antarctica. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this was 2008, correct? Yeah, that's right. 2008. So between, so you, you go... You go on the journey to Nagigia, and that kicks off a solid decade of excursions, right? Oh, dude. Yeah, <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So I went tracking elephants in, in the deserts of Namibia and tagging them and tracking on foot, like uh, both elephants and rhino and uh, then collaring uh, primates. and What else? Then, just, then it was deserts for a long time some mountains, then Antarctica, 100 miles in Antarctica in 2004, 400 or so miles in 2007, and the whole shebang in 2008. Yeah, so all these trips, I mean, these don't sound like coffee sourcing trips. Nope. So these are just you discovering the world, discovering yourself? Yeah, the, I, I guess I was trying to see what was at the bottom of me, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've always wondered, side note, do you, how do you feel when you hear Philadelphians complain about the weather? <laughs> yeah, I'm the same, man. If you're not pulling 300 pounds, you know, behind you, really, you like, you've got your motor full throttle. It's colder than shit. I, I don't like it. Yeah. I mean, I really don't. The, you know, my wife makes fun of me. I will not get in a swimming pool that's below 90 degrees. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going in freezing but cold water. But you hung out in Antarctica and in the hottest deserts in the world. <laughs> yeah. Like I can deal with a hundred below, 
but it, it you know it all it always depends on what you're wearing but really what your mindset is yeah. you know you're if you're in the everyday western world you know mindset of just a coffee guy you can't take the cold yeah. you have to transform yourself that's really interesting both physically and mentally be a different human and once you've made that then it doesn't matter how cold it is do you think that everybody has it in them to do that yeah yeah i do yeah yeah i think everyone has a beast inside them and it takes a while for the beast to come out but when that beast takes over man oh my god it's a thing of beauty you're just like this little doll that's sitting on it like like one of those shelf elves you know that's the real you it's sitting on the shoulder of the beast of the beast and the beast does not take any shit. He does not slow down. He doesn't care. And he can go on and on. He has no idea what boredom is. He has no idea what ma making a mistake is. And you cannot compromise with the guy. No way. You can't. He, the beast, is a, he's a freak of nature. It's just getting that damn dude back in the box is the hard problem. Yeah. Well, you know, get... <laughs> Sometimes you can't be the Hulk. Sometimes you got to be Bruce Banner. <laughs> you really do. If you if you want to live a normal life and you know not tear through a yeah, it's yeah you got to put him back in the box once in a while. So you hulked out in our in Antarctica in two thousand eight. Uh, you wound up setting the record. World record. That's right. Well, first dude uh, in history to do it solo, and then break the the, the you know the team record. Okay, so, so 39 days, 7 hours, 49, 49 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that a goal on the outset to break the record, or was that yeah. an accident? You want to hear the honest truth? Okay, it started out with, I'm going to be the first guy to do it solo. Okay, that was big. That's a big deal. because, And most people think that it's irrational to even try. Because to break trail yourself all, those, all that time is, I mean, you do it two hours, you think you're going to lose your mind. Uh, it's really a frustrating thing to do. So do it 14 hours a day for 50 or 60 days is rough. And I was giving an interview, and I don't know if you've noticed this about me, but I don't really filter all that much. Because if you're <laughs> if you're trying to get at the truth, then sometimes I surprise myself with the truth, right? But sometimes I say dumb shit, right? Okay, <laughs> this was one of those cases where I went, I'm going to be the first man to ever cross Antarctica solo by foot. Pause, count to two. And I'm going to break the world record. I just tagged that thing on, right? And I don't know why I said it. Maybe it was like the beast trying to get out. But then once it was said, then I had to do now it. Now you have to. Yeah, you had to do it. Yeah. So did, it. You, did you have a moment where you were like, oh, shit, what have I done? Oh, yeah. And th that happens a lot. At, at that particular moment, no. I think it was actually Lauren said, why did you throw the world record thing in there? <laughs> You're a freak. And I was like, I know, I just got it. I got over my skis on that one. I just, and then I started doing the math and then I started doing the calculations for the food. And then, you know, I knew I was physically ready. I just needed some good luck and I had some really bad luck. But then I overcame the bad luck and just squeaked under it and it was, it was, I was done. What was the bad luck? Got to hear about that. Well, I mean, the, everyone who's ever been across Antarctica goes on two meter long skis. You have to wear skis because if not, you're going to post hole. And on two, you're going to die because you're going to fall in the crevasses. There's so many of them. And I did do that eight miles in. It's 700 miles and eight miles in, bam, I lost my skis. So I had to post hole the rest of the way. Now, I had work schedules set up for, I think my shifts were like either 10 hours a day. It was like yeah, nine or 10 hours a day. So, you know, how what is it? 692 miles in ski boots. It's hard. 
so that I had to push that to 14 hours a day to make it happen. And then, you know, you're expelling more energy. Now, remember, you know, you're, you're eating 9,000 calories a day, but you're burning 14. So you're losing about almost two pounds of weight a day. And so it's a race of attrition. So I left at 221 pounds and arrived at 163 pounds. And there's a point where you, you lose so much body mass, you can't keep yourself warm anymore. So it's, you're playing with fire. Like, um, you know, just from that amount of time outside heaving that hard, I frostbit my lungs really badly at about 20 to 25% of my lung capacity left. I had left eye frozen. My face was froze. I mean, just all frostbite. Hands, toes, fingers, thighs. You're just, you, yeah. If, if, if I had to be out there another day, I wouldn't have survived. No way. There's just no fucking way. I couldn't have done it. So the moment you're trekking and you see on the horizon. The pole. What goes through your mind? Well, man, I tell you what, what happens is you're two days away when you see it. Okay. It's a tiny little freaking speck. It may, if it's clear, cause half the time you can't see past your own hands, but I could see the pole and you could see the dome and it's surreal. I didn't believe it. Uh, plus I wear, I wear lenses, but it's so cold. You can't wear lenses cause they'll freeze. You get wind in it freeze and they kind of shatter in your eye. So I searched around in my, my sled for a, a camera so I could take a picture and zoom in. I was like, all right, it's <laughs> real. It. Cause I was hallucinating really badly by now. I mean, I was just, people were with me. This, you know, the ice was green. It was, I could see my, my grandfather's house and my left field of vision. It's like, it was, you're tweaking because it's sleep deprivation. You're malnourished. You're, you're, you're overextended, overexhausted. You know, it, you, everyone knows you just trip balls. I mean, it's like you're, so I wanted to verify it. I kept looking at yeah. the camera like when I got in the tent, okay, that's it. And then it just seems like it never gets closer for a long time, long, forever. Because now the beast is getting weaker and you're trying to take control, right? You're rationalizing your thinking and the clock's ticking and there's, then, you know, sat, you're, now it's getting to be a hundred below. So the sat phones go down, or GPS, everything's going down. The stove's barely working because you've, you've climbed up to 14,000 feet too. And you're just seeing this thing and you're thinking to yourself, I can, I can die. I'm going to die in view of the pole. Then it became just a question of just one foot after the other until finally, bam, I was yeah. there. Yeah. And so you step in, you step in the pole, on the pole. I don't know what the... <laughs> yeah, you just, yeah, you, there's a, there's actually a, the pole. there's a pole there and you, you touch it, uh, but there were a lot of worries. I knew I was close to, to death, and I knew that usually it's organ failure. Um, it, you know, three or four miles back, I dropped my sled, and I, I developed a really unnatural affinity and friendship with my sled. I, I know it sounds... No, it's, but I mean, it was, it's the Wilson thing, right? Yeah. You know, when I saw that with my wife, I said, because I had done a lot of isolation work, I said, that is so fake. That is bullshit. That is not true. You know what? If, you, if, you are, if you're out alone... 40 days like or 40 and, and under those conditions yeah it was like leaving my dog and i i got down on my knees and i i called her betty right so and i was like i'm so sorry i'm crying i'm so sorry I'll come back I promise i promise i'm sorry you know it's like i felt terrible so i didn't first want to touch the pole because you didn't have betty i, I needed three thousand calories to get back to her and pull her back in right so this woman came out brought me in and I was negotiating for some food. That was it. I just needed food. 
but I was the crazy guy, right? And my face is all duct taped, and it was just so I said, just give me, I, they have this syrup. I could see the syrup because it's, there's the cafeteria. I said, lady, give me that bottle of syrup. I'm out of your hair because I just want to get calories in to go get Betty so I can celebrate. And uh, someone overheard that as she went to go get a manager and she gave me these two giant cookies with frosting. Yeah, her name was Shelby. And I, I cried like a freaking little boy and I ate them like, like a German shepherd. And then I headed back outside. And, and you got was, Betty. We got Betty, right? Yeah. And I fell asleep in a little shed they had because I couldn't, I hadn't slept for a couple of days. And when I woke up, there were lots of people in the shed shaking me. There's blood everywhere. Just, and I was just coughing up all this blood. It's a, it's the, you know, I had vessels that were bursting in my lungs and they brought me in and started giving me, you know, drugs to bring me back. Cause it, they, they can, there's a little, Kind of, we're not a hospital. What do you call those? It's like a little clinic inside there. That uh, they don't want you in that building. There's just for scientists, right? And and uh, but there was just one condition: is if someone's life were in danger, they'd bring them in. So they they'd anticipated. They thought mine was. And and I were they expecting you? They, I imagine they were expecting you. There was I, the rush. I got this little Russian guy to drop me on the edge of the pole. He he was when he dropped me. He was not sober and. I don't know if he was that reliable and um, he was supposed to call in and predict the time, but no one thought that I would ever make it. And then no one thought that I would ever break the world record. So they knew that some guy was doing this, but they would, they wouldn't think I would be there yet. And when you arrive there, they live in like the space station, right? Yeah. Outside is not a place that they go. So when you walk up and you pound on a window, it's as if like an astronaut just floated up to the space station. What? How in the fuck did this guy get here? That it really did blow their minds. Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as I was a little bit rational, it took me a couple of days. If I'd taken a lot of um, IV, a lot of food, where I can think quasi reasonable, they I spent some time you know talking to the guys and kind of tell explaining how I got there. So at that point, it's time to come back. Yeah. Was life different? Yeah, it was harder. It was, okay, a couple things happened. So 10 days from the poll, uh, I talked to my wife on the SATCOM phone, and she said, we're going to be parents. And we we uh, were in the process of becoming adoptive parents, and we, um, we, we knew that we wanted more than one child. We knew that we wouldn't want to start with a certain age. Now we got a match. Her name is Yemi. So I knew I'd be a dad. So I had that in my mind. And this was this was 10 days after the poll? No, on um, before I got the poll. Oh, so you were out. You were trekking when you I got was the there. News. Yeah, I, there's a sat phone and at a certain time of the day this Russian satellite comes over. You can connect into it. You don't have a lot of time. It's like weird time delay, but I got Lawrence cuz you're going to be a dad. And I went, "Holy shit, I better nail this thing cuz there's no way I'm coming back again with with kids. Hey guys, we're taking 2 months off. I'm going to go to the South Pole." Yeah. Um yeah, that's it. So there was that. There was um, I couldn't stop thinking about what the next thing would be, right? And that was Death Valley. And then I, I just I was having a lot of problems because of, like my I couldn't regulate my, my blood sugar anymore because just of how you eat every you eat every seventy minutes for four months, your body just forgets how to regulate it on meals. So I couldn't sleep completely, and and I was just having loads of nightmares for months because the beast voice just wouldn't stop, you know. Um, so that I had a lot of going, I was really, 
Now I didn't, Yemi came home and it all went away. I mean, when I went to Ethiopia, I got my little girl and I brought her home. All that shit just disappeared. But the next four months were really troubled for me. There's no celebrating. I never enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed doing it. I never got the joy of, a, of, of doing it, of having done it. Yeah. So, so yeah, was, is having your name in the record books and, you know, sort of having the stories to tell worth all of that? I think, well, what happened from that is the, you know, all right, I tell you where that kind of came. It's like, one is defying who you are. It's really important for me to defy, defy who I am. And that's, you know, from Mount Rainier on, you know, like as a kid and marathoning and ultra marathoning the desert, it's always about not being the person you're defined as. It's pushing beyond that, right? And recognizing that, I know there's the common way of saying it is that not being satisfied with the box that you're in, right? Breaking those boundaries. Second thing is, you know, when I was a kid, I worked at this gas station called Big Reds and I would pump gas, right? I was like, this is back in the old days where they don't care how old you are, you know, where I was like 14 pumping gas and I used to have to dip the tanks and you take this long stick, you, you know, you take the cover off the tank and you, you drop it down there until it touches the bottom and you pull it out and you see how much fuel is in that tank. It's called dipping the tanks. Antarctica, the deserts, it's about dipping the tanks. I want to know how deep that fucker is. I want to know how much I got inside. And there's only one way to do it, man. And that's just do it, go. So what I learned from Antarctica is that, yeah, man, I can go a long way. I can really do it. You know, look at, look at La Coloma. All the people who started companies like mine have all sold and flogged off and done. It's 25 years. Fuck it. You want to see how far I can go? This is, I know now. I know that. And when I became a dad, no worries. I can outlast, outstand, outdad, outpush anybody. I know how deep my tanks are, right? And that's, that's the takeaway from it, you know? And if everyone, if that, you know, if the, if the Antarctic conversation went completely away, I wouldn't feel much loss because the real benefit is still, it's just sitting in me. You know, when you approach difficult challenges in your life, you go, well, it's been harder than this before. Knowing that is super important to me. You know, knowing that my boundaries are way further than even, even I expected. So in the day-to-day challenges of life, you're just like, well, you know. <laughs> how hard can this be? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm not like Warren survived non-Hopkins lymphoma, you know, and at a time you're not supposed to, right? And Lauren, my wife. And, you know, we were, we're raising four children who come from very difficult circumstances. So there were really tough challenges in the early parts of that. And, and you know, we've had these challenges in life. When, when something comes at us, we're like, fuck. You know, it's like, really? Like, if you got a crack in your app, you know, in your iPhone or something awful happens, we, can, we know we can rally. And Lauren looks over at me and goes, that guy? could take that on his back and walk 500 miles in that direction if he has to, right? We know this, and it's important to, to test your wings. Okay, if right now you grew a set of wings and you could fly, okay, after you got over the shock of that, you're going to probably want to know what they can do. How far can I go? How high? How high? How far? How fast? Yeah. Right? Well, how about your insides? Aren't you interested to in know how high, how far, and how fast they can go? Well, find something that's regulated and go for it. Yeah. So by now you've already heard Todd's firsthand account of his experience setting the solo world record of fastest trek to the South Pole. 
But I bet if you dig deep enough into the interwebs, you could see it all too. That's because Todd filmed his adventure over the 39 days and National Geographic turned it into an award-winning documentary. This would prove to only be the beginning of Todd's career as a television adventurer as he would go on to host two seasons of Dangerous Grounds on the Travel Channel. The key difference here though is that these trips weren't just for fun. This time, he was going to the most inaccessible places in the world in search of the greatest coffee. I'd been doing that the whole time anyway. You were right? always sourcing coffee from yeah, the hardest to reach is, places. Well, it, you know, obviously when we first started, like anywhere was the hardest to reach place because you didn't have GPS, you didn't have cell phones, we didn't have internet, we didn't have any of this stuff. You, you didn't go to the library and go, Brazil, coffee, you know, there's no way. So you would have to go to, you know, to some major town and just rent a truck and drive. And then it got harder and harder to find the same juice. You know what I'm saying? So then you start moving out into the harder and tougher areas. Um, and, but it was, you know, like three a year kind of thing, you know? Um, and what was happening is then they invent the cell phone and they invent the video camera on the cell phone. And I'm bringing the stuff back to Lauren. I go, check this. Like I was in Columbia coming in on a tiny aircraft. And it's just, you know, it looks like one of these drug airports where it's just, it's just a, you know, a path cut into the jungle. And there's two other like local people behind me, but with, I mean, literally chickens, these, there's little ladies with chickens. There's me and the pilot's barefooted. Right. So, and I'm just like, <laughs> this, and I'm like, this is, I got to show her this. This is just so amazing. And we come in too hot. We flip the plane. Right. So it's fucking just tumbles and tumbles. No, everyone's okay. Plane's fucked. Right. And, but I got the whole thing on video. So I bring it back and I'm showing these things to Lauren and uh, it was after Antarctica, uh, after Antarctica, and I, I collected a lot of video as a diary for Lauren and our, our family was coming. She took it to a production house and they turned it into a documentary film that won the LA Film Festival. So now TV all wants me to become the next, you know, Survivor Man. Oh, but gotcha. Bear Grylls. I don't want to do that. I said, I'd say, no, I'm, I don't want to. No, I'm really happy with the career I have. And so she was in a conversation with one of these people and says, check out these videos. You should do something like this. So Lauren calls me up. She goes, where are you going next? And I go, uh, like two or three weeks. I'm, I'm thinking of going into Haiti. She goes, well, would you mind going with a, uh, with a camera guy? Camera guy or two, like two camera guys. And I was like, you know, and I said, sure. And they go, well, it's going to be a pilot for a show. Yeah. And I said, all right. And I thought, this is not going to do anything. I think people are going to be bored with this, right? And we shot the first episode. And it was, it was quite amazing because... You know, one guy wanted to kill me and it was just like everything fucking went wrong. You know, so like it was just like so. Look. And the next thing you know, I did. I was doing TV for three years. Yeah, I just. Yeah, I just. And then when the, th the third year came, when there was discover uh, conversations, but I, I decided to, to bow out because um, I really wanted to build this plant in Michigan for the draft latte. And I didn't think I could do both well. So I picked one. So what was what was the biggest challenge before we talk about the latte? What was the biggest challenge of um, of having a TV show of hosting? Like, what was there any surprise challenges that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I think the the biggest challenge is to keep it as real as possible. That's really a big challenge with TV because it's I think it's easier to keep it real if not a lot of people are watching it. But if people start watching it, then the the, the channel and everyone else wants to come in and and control it. Um, but I just have a huge advantage over everybody else. You know, you can't keep up. It's like, I'm, I'm going to blow out the first season. 
you know, they, they'll say like, oh, could you eat in like two restaurants or places? And and if you can, ride a goat or whatever. Yeah. You know, they, they have they have the wish list, right? And you go, that's cool. I mean, I get it, right? Right? <laughs> like whatever. They wouldn't say ride a goat, but no, I know, but but no, they would. I, just, I mean, I get the sentiment, yeah. And but second season, they really wanted to touch it. So, for example, if you watch like the Brazil or the Bolivia episode, see, I booked the flights through Bolivia and I think I forget where we were going to go. They had an entire crew waiting there for me. We never showed up. I got off in Bolivia and we shot it there and they were pissed, but it was as real as hell. And that's why that episode's so great. So the challenge is in, in reality TV is to keep it real. And yeah, it's it's harder than it sounds. But third season, they just cut me loose. Then they said, okay, this guy's not going to behave. So of all those times, I mean, what was what was the moment? And, you know, this could go back to Antarctica. What point in your life so far have you most been convinced that you were going to die? DR Congo. Because, you know, you got about 14 different factions in there. And I was crossing from Rwanda. And everyone was shooting everyone else in the face. And we just got caught up in the in light. First time I've ever been caught up in live fire. Like, like when you go, oh shit! And I, I, I carry like a fucking, you know, a jackknife. I don't carry right. weapons, right. you know. And I thought, oh, I'm fucked. And so what happened? I mean, you walk, you're yeah. going around, and you just start hearing fire. And what do you do? Yeah, well, th- th- what we knew is that the groups were fighting each other, not us. So the best thing to do in that scenario is lay on your face and hope they don't step on you and they come by. And so we waited out about two and a half hours, waiting, quiet, quiet, quiet. And then, uh, now, to get across the Rwandan border from Rwanda to DR Congo, it's really, really hard. Um, but you have Lake Kivu, and it's a very smallish kind of lake. So we we skirted around on the lake. We are in a boat. So we had this boat all moored up. And uh, so we got back in the boat, pushed it out as quiet as we can. And we bought maybe seven. And I'm like, fuck, okay, we're out here. And then they're lighting bullets up coming across the lake. But it was very clear that they weren't shooting at us. They were just scaring us away because uh, they could have fucking killed us. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. yeah. So you got away. Yeah. I got away with that one. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. That got away. Man. I got, like, I got away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. And it's, the coolest part is it's all chronicled online. You can go watch all those episodes. Yeah. A lot of them. You, yeah. Some of it is, Do you ever go uh, back and watch them? I don't because I, I'm such a perfectionist. I think, oh man, I should have said this. I should have said that. I mean, <laughs> when they're when they're cutting them, you know, I get to sign off on them. So I see the cut version, and then we don't, you know, I don't really watch it. The but some of the stuff, some of the greatest things never get caught on film. You know the, um, you know, and some of the most outrageously dangerous things can't be filmed. Like yeah, what's you know, one thing that happened that you couldn't catch? Like you know. All right, for example, you get caught up in a situation where it's just all poppy fields, all for opium. And these fucking guys are pulling you out of a truck. The last thing you're doing is, hey, let's film this. You know, it's like, and you're just, you're swung around, you're on the ground. You just think, oh shit, here we go. You know, you're, you're wondering, you know, I mean, most of the time, I mean, the worst things that ever happened is you just get beat really hard. I mean, everybody, that's what they want to do to you. Because if you've really been beaten sufficiently where you could still kind of get up and drive out of there, you're not coming back, right? Um, and so you, you're kind of looking for the signs and this is no fun, but you're going to survive it. Um, sometimes when you're not getting beat, that's the scariest one because they're going to just go right to the list off these guys, particularly when they start screaming, you CIA, CIA, CIA. Oh, fuck. When you start oh, hearing so that. they think that you are like the feds or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so how do you convince them that you're not? You don't. <laughs> you don't. They're not going to believe anything you say. You take your hat off. The first thing I do is I always take my hat off. So I look much older, right? I don't look so aggressive. And you just let them rip through your shit. You know, it's like that's, And they just see all your shit and they realize, what the fuck? And then you start answering their questions. Just tell them that you're looking for coffee. Wow. So let's talk about the draft latte. Uh, I saw the statistic that within 12 months of the draft latte being released, you were in 62% of, what was it, grocery stores? Yeah, store. Well, I'll, of stores. Yeah, stores. Yeah, that includes mass and convenience and club and yeah, just stores across America. How did the idea for the canned latte come to you? First, it started with criticism. You know, when I looked at your own I, criticism. Yeah, I, I started looking at something we were doing, and I realized we'd been doing it wrong for fifteen years. So it's see, it was middle nineties. Someone came in the cafe and said, "Hey, can I get a nice latte?" And I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard of. I mean, I'm way older than you. Let me just tell you, that was like hearing, can I have a hot beer? You know, it's like no wow. one had ice and coffee together. It just wasn't, your brain didn't go there. But of course, I, I made something, but I made it out of concocting something from the hot environment. So it's a, an espresso and hot milk. and blah, I made it. Um, and I was looking at it. Someone, it was, I was in New York and I looked at one on the bar and, it's, and someone said, ice latte to go. And I went. Oh shit, that's not a latte. Because a latte is three ingredients, not two. It's concentrated coffee, like espresso, milk, and the third ingredient is vapor. Vapor. We put we put water vapor in there. That's a hot latte. But you can't obviously use water vapor in the cold environment, so we eliminated the texture. So I looked at that and realized, God, I've been doing this wrong forever. I gotta get the vapor back in that thing. And so in a very short period of time I came up with the draft latte on tap. Yeah compressed nitrous oxide injected into the milk and then you create the and i love the mouthfeel and it went great and it was someone who i know says listen if you could figure out how to put that in a can man you could you can you can change the world and he used those words well it's funny because that's what i want to do right so i went holy shit then i better do that and you know like when you're you're working in a problem in the background your mind is constantly turning and turning and then the world just hands you the answers yeah. piece by piece oh totally so I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and my, my wife always, she can always tell when I'm working on something like this. And I was up really in the early morning. I can't remember why. I was like four. I had to go somewhere. And I'm going in her, her bathroom looking, you know, I shouldn't be. I'm, I'm looking for like shaving cream, right? Because I'm out or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I find hers. I find, the, you know, the chick gel, right? Yeah, yeah. And I realized that the bottom of that gel can is, is an actual valve. And I look at it for a while. I thought, hmm. Now, I didn't think directly of the draft latte, but I remember thinking, that's funny. I never knew that cans could have valves on them. That's interesting, right? That was it. A couple days later, still trying to think about texturized milk. My son at the time was four years old. I was teaching him how to eat out of a refrigerator. Like every man, you know, should teach his son the proper way to graze in the refrigerator. That's right. And what what to go for, what not to touch, right? Like, see that? Mom counts those. Yeah. Right? Over <laughs> here, doesn't count these. And then I saw whipped cream. And I said, okay, first, this is whipped cream. You got to know this, right? First, never do it like this. Shake it, right? Shake, shake. Open your mouth. And I blasted in his mouth some whipped cream, and that's all I needed. That was it. My, it was my wife's shaving and my son teaching my son how to eat. And then uh, I guess about four days later, uh, I had a working model. And two weeks later, I was pitching Crown Cork and, cork and Seal to build a plant to accommodate making a can with a valve in it. Wow. 
And then, and then within a year, you're at 62%. Yeah. Well, then it was, then I had to build a small plant then I had to build the big plant. But yeah, I think it was like door to door from like standing at that refrigerator to launching in, let's say, you know, like Whole Foods and Targets and Wagmans was maybe 20 months. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So when you get that moment, you're like, I know what I want this to be. Do you just like, like that's never been done before, right? No. What's the first step you take? I mean, you go and you find somebody that can make a whipped cream can and say, hey, can you do coffee instead? Like, how do you, what's the first step you take? Well, see what I had done, I think it's really important that you make a prototype. Okay. You have to make a prototype because you're, you cannot, you've got an image in your mind and it's almost impossible to convey the image unless it's three dimensional and it's operational. So I took a beverage can, I drilled a hole in the bottom, I put a volleyball valve in it, I put a double, you know, put cold brew, espresso, concentrated espresso, real milk, seamed it, took a nitrous oxide tank with a pin, you know, a pin that, put it in there, injected it with 35 pounds of, uh, pounds per square inch of nitrous oxide, waited three minutes, opened it, poured it, it foamed like a bitch, right? So then I made a case of them and I went in and I made sure that I had some friends who were contacting the board of this aluminum can manufacturing company that I had their CEO, COO, their CFO, everybody in the room. And all I did was open those fucking cans and say, this is going to save your company. This is your future. And I pitched like a fucking whore. How many do I just, I mean, I was pitching. Yeah. And they agreed. Yeah. They were right. Now I had to edge them along. Yeah. What kind of convincing did that take? Well, I had to do the machine. I had to figure out the die sets that would actually make that work. I had to commit to a number of cans. Um, and then you see that the, the, the patents and stuff are around the can, but then I had to actually invent the machines that could process this for a factory. So I didn't really know how to do that. So I said, all right, I'm going to build a small footprint one in Port Richmond. There's a, a, a draft latte making line there that can do 5,000 cases a week. So I finally figure out all that. I mean, we're, it's just basically working with my hands and a couple guys and just welding and trying and die cutting and just, so we figured, okay, all the way to get it shelf stable. Then of those 5,000 cases, I took all my, you know, I hired the best, best representative and sales guys in the country. And I just fed them, get rid of 5,000 cases a week, go to every retailer, show up, pitch them. So they were pitching these guys, the, uh, all the drinks before I had actually even started building the big plant. So we built up as much freaking demand and just kept visiting and visiting. So I've got sales guys on the road, no product, no factory yet. Find a factory in, in northern or in western Michigan. It's an old yogurt factory. Gut it and restart the big factory. Now that one could do full tilt. That one can do a billion cans a year. Billion. Right. It's I built big. It's not a tiny thing. It's and it's state of the art. And by the time their resets and grocery happened, and by the time I mean their demands at a feverish pitch, the first trucks were leaving and just went, oh my god. So it rose like it came out of nowhere. Yeah. Wow. That's how it happened. <laughs> Take note, everybody who's looking to develop a product. <laughs> Start with the first. If you can do one, just do yeah. one. If you get that one, you then can you can convince the world. You can convince the world then. And make it out of, you know, I mean, 3D mold and, you know, do everything you can. You can, you know, the first one, all in, I guess that was maybe $1,500 to make the first one. That's what it took. And now you know, they say it's a billion dollar brand. So you go, well, okay, you know, make your prototype. It's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're now 25 years into La Cologne. Yep. 
You planted your roots in Philly, 1994. It's 2018. La has changed like crazy. So has Philly. Yeah, we both have. In yeah. what ways is it most apparent to you how Philly has changed in the past 25 years? Well, you know, big parts of Philly have changed. Not all of it. Um, you know, the... You know, I hate to say this in this way, but the haves have done really well in Philly. You know, the, I think there's, you know, the middle class has gone stronger. I think that the, uh, the upper class has done even better. I think those areas of our city have improved. Um, I think that in the general safety of the city is different. The, the brand and the feeling of the city, that sense of momentum. And, um, you know, the, I think that it's, it's now really, Philly used to think of like Montgomery County as this as competition. Now it's starting to think of like Chicago, New York, and DC. It's, it's kind of accepted its big boy pants and um and it started kind of moving forward with with that concept there's still this there's still this kind of second class citizenry kind of brand it's it, it or kind of like residue it's got to get rid of yeah but um you know i mean the first month i was in philly i got mugged twice you know what i mean this was what it was and it's hard you don't hear about people getting mugged in philly anymore um it, it was just it was a it was a place that had been really really run down and was, you know, it was, it was down on its luck. And it's definitely not that anymore. We were talking earlier about how Philly has this, some, sometimes Philly can have this apologetic attitude or, or almost like an inferiority type of thing. I know why that is though. Why is that? Because half our people are poor. It's our original sin. Because we can't, we can't be proud of ourselves when half the population is living in misery. It's just factual. You know, I don't want to be down on Philly. It's just factual. You know, if we didn't, if we could address this issues in a real way, we wouldn't feel this way. You know, you're fucking up. You know, you're sinning. You know, we're doing things that aren't right. So how can you be proud, right? I think that if we could, if we could turn that around, we could invest in our schools and our communities and we could, we can address our kind of the racial inequalities that we have and the income inequalities that we have then we would be a lot prouder. But we can't quite yet. I mean, hopefully, um, I'm hopefully part of that solution and we can move forward, but we're living with the original sin of mass poverty. Yeah. How can you be proud of that? It's true. It's very true. Now you bring up a good point and, you know, it's like... It's a total downer thing to no, say. No, it's true, but it's I true. I mean, <laughs> and, and we've, you know what, I think every single podcast episode we've had so far, we've talked about this, how, you know, Philly has has indeed gone through a renaissance in the past 25 years in certain parts in places that's in places correct. and yeah. it's very easy to hide from the fact that for most of the city that's not the case mm -hmm. so i think that's both uh, you know it's it's daunting for sure and it is a downer but we have to talk about it we have to be aware of we it. really we do i it. mean and particularly you know those those people you know and i'm going to include you know myself in that 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 Let's face it, I mean, La Colombe would not exist without Philly. And so I have a, a responsibility to make sure that I don't give fucking back. No, that I just, that I, yeah, I, I play my role. This is what you're here for. You know, I mean, it's like that I share. There you go. That I be a part of the solution. That I, that I don't just like close the doors, you know. It's like everyone's running for safety and then at some point someone was trying to close the garage doors on everyone they're like you're on the outside screw you no 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 
Now, this is where we make sure that we help people in, help people in. And, you know, in Philadelphia, I get it. I get the feeling that some business leaders and some wealthy people and they're trying to close the door off to those people that are still stuck outside. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier how you are an outspoken CEO. And yeah, it's true. Has it always been important to you to voice your opinions, regardless of how controversial they may be to potential customers? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think it's really important to be a decent person. And I think that, you know, a brand is, is, is supposed to be a personality. Um, and I want to make sure that the personality of, of La Colombe is that of a decent person. Um, and that requires that you, you speak out. Um, I, I think that neutrality is culpability when it comes to certain things. And that I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. And I want La Colombe to be a part of it. So it means that you can't sit, you can't be quiet and be a part of the solution. You simply can't. Um, and if, I don't know, if some somebody doesn't like my lattes because I think that we need to fund our schools, then fuck him. Yeah. You know, it's like kind of what I think. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. No. It's... The, um, I just like, I just, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll just take that latte in the guts. Um, it, yeah. I, I, we know what I hope is that instead, the, you know, La Colombe is growing at, 350% right now, right? And that's a pretty good clip. I mean, it's a pretty good clip. And so that's, so when I use my voice, I want other CEOs to realize, hey man, it's not such a bad thing for your business to be decent. Yeah. yeah. To weigh in on things. Are you good with, you know, the US government ripping brown babies from their moms on the, on the border? You think that's a good thing? Oh, I'm neutral on that. I'm neutral on that, really. Right. I'm not neutral on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really hard for me not to be anything other than loud about it. Yeah. You know, interestingly, though, you recently in a stance uh, in favor of better privacy on social media went dark. Yeah. Actual total delete. Deleted. Yeah. Deleted. Yeah. Gone. So but recently even back. Yeah. I played with it a little bit and then then actually deleted the whole thing. Oh, so you're completely dark now. Yeah. Because I had some conversations with Twitter and I felt I felt like they were moving in the right direction. And then then I was assured that I, I'm not that comfortable with it. So gotcha. I, I then deleted it. So I wanted to, I'm curious, do you think that that at all diminishes your ability to reach somebody who may be able to see your activity on Twitter and, and hear your voice and see, you know, a CEO who's standing up for these things? No, I don't think anyone's learning anything on social media. I don't think so. I don't, you know, I mean, I could give you, you know, everyone is just screaming in the darkness and it's just a bunch of loud voices. You know, if I retweet something or say something, no one's having an epiphany anywhere. So the best voice you can have is to delete it. That's the only voice you have. That's all, that, yeah. that's, all that's left. That's the biggest statement you can so make. So imagine if everyone who thought like me deleted Facebook and Twitter today, you know how fucking loud that would be? That would be amazing. Because if you go, hey, I saw this on Politico, you know, you know, or whatever it is, it's just the same, you know, rehashing of the same stuff that you go, it's it's no longer, you know, as a business, I wouldn't say, I think it's like, if you're in that conversation of, of you know, here, you know, hey, here's a shirt you don't need to tuck in, or uh, here's a subscription of a shaver, or here is a La Colombe's new flavor of, I mean, it's just neutral and like that. Okay, I get it. That's That's okay. I'm fine. But if it, you're there in order to, to, to share an important message with other people, no one is listening. So why participate? 
And then ultimately, they're also pulling data from you that they're going to use, the metadata, to compromise democracy. It's just, let's get real. They're going to make laws eventually. That to, this is going to be something they're going to read about in the history books. So actually, by being on, you're actually making a negative effect. By leaving, it's your only positive, it's the only chip you have. So I say, I said to me myself, if that's my only chip, I'm ready to cash it in. Yeah. So how then, how are you going to be expressing your voice? Analog. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to do, I'll be doing some podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> and there you go. No, I right think, here. I think podcast is a great platform. Um, I think writing is a really important platform. I, I write a lot of op-eds. Uh, I want I want to write books. Um, I you know I, I get asked to, to do lots of lectures. So uh, you know on a monthly basis, I may have three major lectures in, in large halls. So I'm deciding to use that platform. I'm thinking again about doing another t television series, something a little bit more local, hopefully, uh, or at least film locally. Right. <laughs> and kind of just go old school analog and. And then, you know, there's something that happens, you know, if you, if you, if your company gets to a certain size and you get, you know, I have a thousand employees who each, each of these baristas speak to thousands of people and they're injected in the same kind of sauce that I am, that you realize that just by doing your business and talking with people that I'm having way, I think a larger effect. Um, now for me, it's about civic responsibility. It's not about politics. It's about doing something that's right and decent, right? Or things that are, but sometimes what I believe in overlaps political, you know, political things. So I have the privilege of, of going to the Senate. I, I can speak to the Senate. I speak to Congress people, you know, I've been in the fucking Oval Office. So I'm using this constantly to my, to my benefit. And when I tweet something from the New York Times and a bunch of people tell me it's fake news, I just go, all right, fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going analog. I can't take it anymore. So you, know? yeah, you bring up this echoes something that you have called the bane of your existence. Uh, the, the illusion, you know, this, the internet age, social media, we call it being connected, but it's an illusion, right? I believe it's an illusion. Yeah. La Colombe doesn't have Wi-Fi in its cafes. No, it does not. Mm -mm. How hard have you had to fight to keep that rule? Well, you know, it's, there's a luxury of, you know, being a, a bit of a, activist CEO is that I, I don't have to fight. I just, it's, that's people yell at me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I stopped looking at Yelp because you just, <laughs> you know, I just, I can't bear it anymore. You know, it's, um, but at the same time, yeah, connect be, to be connected to a human means being able to see their 3d figure and, and smell them and touch them and, feel them and now you're connected like right now i feel very connected to you um twitter facebook is just it's a dim shadow of reality and to pass the 3d one up for the dim shadow you know i, I don't know why people would do that maybe it's safer but ultimately what i'm doing here and the reason i don't offer wi-fi is this every cafe is a, is, a, is a little universe that i've created and you're, you're this, you know, you're this person that comes in to the, you, you know, the universe has been created for you to have a certain experience. And then you want to leave, but keep your body there. And I'm like, no, no, no. If you're in the universe, I really want you to experience, you know, you know, it's like, it's like wearing duct tape or your eyes and going to a museum. Like, you know, the, the curator is going to be angry with you. 
He's going to say, hey, hey, no duct tape allowed, right? Staring at your phone screen the whole time. I just, come on, man. Just take it in five minutes. You know, please just look around. Um, I think that the data world will win out because eventually we're not going to need Wi-Fi. And so I don't know what I'm going to do then. But, uh, and it's not that I'm against it. I mean, I go online all day long at work, you know. But I, I want you to have an experience. I want you to meet your next boyfriend or girlfriend. I want you to meet your next best friend. I want you to talk about the game with somebody next to you. I want you someone to, to, you know, hook you into the sound that they're listening to on their iPad. I want you to converse. You know, the third spot isn't the second working space. The third spot is just should be a protected zone and a curated experience, like a whole full universe and one in which maybe you get to meet someone cool. So I'd like to ask you some questions that I ask all my guests just to get the different perspectives. Um, what would you say is a common misconception about you? Oh, yeah, common, that, I, that I'm an adrenaline junkie. You're not? No, I hate adrenaline. Really? Yeah, yeah. I love adventure. What's the difference? Uh, adrenaline is what you feel when you jump off the space needle with a handheld parachute. That's adrenaline. You know, adventure is what you feel when you're standing on top of a mountain. They're very different. You know, endurance and adventure can be, can, you find a harmony in, the, in, the, in its difficulty. And adrenaline is when you almost get shot in the face, right? And, and I'll live through those experiences, but it's not what I'm looking for. It's not why you're yeah. there. No. You know, one is like, um, and the other one is cocaine. Yeah. Right. I just like, you go, okay, very different experiences. I'm looking for more of, um, if you could send other than just sheer words of encouragement, if you could send a message to your past self at any point, would you? And if so, at what point and what would you say? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think about this very often. It's always time travel. You know, I think, man, I wish I can go back and tell him. Um, you know, there, that everyone's life is is bumpy. You know, the um, and there have been bumpy bits, and in those bits, I've I've lost confidence, or or I've I'm start moving towards losing confidence in in the process and my path. And there are times that I can go back and say, bro, don't worry, just chill, just keep going. I, I did keep going, but I carried this burden of anxiety with me. You know, there, you know, there, you, you can't live to 55 and push the boundaries I've pushed so far. I've almost lost my company three, four times. I've almost lost my life a dozen times. And that comes with consequences. I should just say, chill. This is just part of it. You know? So do you try to, that, that's a lot easier to talk about now, you know, in hindsight. Do you go through those experiences in the present day where you have to sort of take a minute and say to yourself, like sort of, you know, receive that proverbial message from you in the future? Yeah, I, that's, see, I love that. This is how I get through tough times. I, I literally visit myself. I do. I, I project this guy and he comes back and goes, Todd, you know, it's like, come on, I'm going to give you a little perspective here. And you know what? I always find the guy from the future comes back. Turns out we invented a new cream that you can grow your hair back. <laughs> and this guy has got a great head of hair. I go, I knew it. I knew I would get it back. No, the, uh, yeah, no, this is, you know, 
when you're again i mean it's just the you know people are humans are humans and i think there's a lot of ceos out there that like to pretend they're not we everyone suffers from the same foibles you know the same worries the same concepts about your kids about you know and it, it just doesn't matter how much the company's doing or anything like that it's just you you have all these human factors that come in right and you know you watch these ceos lecture and like yes then i walked across antarctica the, the tv blah blah, blah you bleed like like it's, everything was just just imagine you doing it it's, it feels just the same yeah there's never a lot of that relief and so i use that time travel mechanism the he, the guy from the future will probably come back to the guy right now and say the same shit i'm saying to this guy not the one in the back yeah. todd just trust the process trust the process. it's okay i'm always looking for boogeyman's and my family motto is i was nervous and i was afraid but i did it anyway and all my kids say it and i say it and i and i apply it to myself all the time yeah so i'd like to say to the guy hey you know, don't be nervous. Don't be afraid because you're going to do it anyway. We kind of touched on this, but what do you think is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? It must address its poverty. It must address its educational system. It's broken. And we are, uh, we are shirking our responsibilities to our children. Uh, we... Those are the two main things. We, we need to stop companies from paying employees predatory wages. You know, um, you can't survive in 725 an hour. It should be illegal. It's immoral. It's wrong. We have to address the, the health issue of the city. You know, if you look at our rates of diabetes and our rates of, of uh, you know, cardiac issues, etc., and you relate them directly to poverty and education and lack of this, this is wrong. You know, this is this is the gilded age of the top 25% of Philly. Okay, I agree. But what we need to do is transition into that next phase where there's more of us underneath the freaking awning. And, you know, I think, I think that, you know, I tried very hard and I worked with a lot of men to try to get Amazon to come here. But you know what? The schools suck. There's no way they're coming. They look at our schools and they say, I'm not going to. And look at, look, at, look at how people are being remunerated for work. You know, we keep trying to sweep this issue under the rug and we want to be a, a main player in the city. We're not going to be until we put our big boy pants on and solve the big boy problems. You know, and, and we have, I get it, you know, 25 years ago, we didn't have the buoyancy. We didn't have the leverage. We didn't have, you know, the things that we have at our disposition now to, to solve those problems. But now that we do, we have to. No it's said, or this is, this is it. This is it. You know, and you go, okay, whereas other cities you know, that, that address these issues. I mean, look at the, you know, Cal the state of California, the state of Washington, the state of New York, you know, they're addressing these issues and they're actually growing faster than we are because they're attracting companies. No one wants to put a company in a city where they can't send their kids to school. I mean, it's just a basic thing. And I frankly have a hard problem living in a city where we're good with all the poverty. And so, yeah, I'm going to be a dick about it more and more as we, we go i feel like that's the only way to actually change anything yeah and i don't think talking about on twitter is going to take me anywhere so what i do is i just go full start press you know this particular mayor i love him and then this the city council they're good i meet them once a week seriously i am i am they love and hate me yeah. um and i want to see what i can do uh, 
you know, I, I think what we've done is we've decided to treat, you know, the, our companies like they're fragile. Like, oh my God, if we tax them, if we actually ask them to participate in, in, in you know, the recovery of our city and the rest of our citizens, they'll run away. Yeah, like where? Allentown? Where are they going to go? They could look at any place they're going to go and their taxes are higher. They're here to stay, baby. Do you think Comcast is going to jerk those two buildings out and put them somewhere else? <laughs> they're not. Okay, no, so let's get serious and solve our problems. This was a problem 25 years ago. There weren't a lot of businesses. They were fragile. They were just hanging on, right? Yeah. But today, let's make them pay. In other words, raise my taxes. My name is Todd Carmichael. Fucking raise my taxes now. Raise the taxes on my business. Raise the tax on me. And give it to the people who actually need it. Yeah. That's what I think we should do. So, on the flip side. Yeah. What do you think is the most encouraging thing about Philadelphia today? Well, it's the thing that I'm finding most encouraging. And the, the people that I really owe uh, a big thanks for the success of La Colombe is this, this younger generation. Um, you know, what they've actually done is this younger generation, they call them the millennials, right? Yeah. Um, Not so much anymore. Millennials are getting but, up to 40. <laughs> I know, right? But no, but I, that's what I'm saying. I love these guys. But the millennials, are, it's, a, it's a concentrated psychographic that also kind of ex now is extended, yeah. you know? Because when I started in 93 and like 2000, in 93 and 2000, when I really was leaning towards some of these things, like I want to work directly with a farmer to make sure there's no middlemen. I want to make sure that my farmers get water. I want to make sure, and these very basic ideas, I want to make sure that my employees have health insurance. And I want to make sure my product doesn't have pesticides in it. So it was an idea that, that got no purchase. Like, no one gave a shit. I mean, it was like, whatever. How much does it cost? That's it. <laughs> That's it. It was just like, what? Then this audience came along that got it. And I didn't have to do anything special. Suddenly I just felt like Neil Young, you know? It was like, suddenly I'm old and still cool. Yeah. I mean, I, okay, all right. <laughs> just, it's just, or I'm cooler now than I ever was. It's just amazing. Um, and this, and now the Z that's coming behind it, they're taking their doubling down on that. And this is the most exciting thing. And I know it's not just Philly, but the youth of Philadelphia, they're, they're so mad spot on. You know, they get it. They just get it. And I think this generation isn't going to turn the, the, the poor out on the street. This generation isn't going to accept the idea that people get paid, you know, not enough to even feed their own families, even if it's a single child. This, this generation isn't going to settle for that shit. And I look at, the, you know, the gun control issues and I look at what they're looking at. I think this is super promising. When this generation is running the big businesses, this fucking place is going to rock. Yeah. That's what I love about Philly. If you could send a text message that would be received and read by every single Philadelphian. Yeah. What would you say? Oh God, dude. <laughs> How many words do I got? <laughs> every single one? Oh shit. Dude, that's a hard question. You could have told me about this question before I had it. I'd get a chance to think about it. You know what? It's uh, uh, Chill actually said when I interviewed him, he's like, these are like the SAT essay questions. You think you're done and then it's another two hours. I know, right? <laughs> Don't you just love Chill though? He's the man. God, he is. I Check love out the Chill guy. Moody episode. Talk uh, about a guy who does not quit, right? Yeah. He's Mr. Hustle. Um, what did Chill say? Do you remember? I, I phrased it differently from him. I, I used to say if you had a billboard... That every Philadelphian would see what would yeah. you put on it. Okay, yeah, that's one. If you want yeah. to answer that one, you can choose that. Oh, that's super easy. Okay, so it shows you how analog I am. Big sign, right? And there's a little dove on it, and it just says, thank you. Yeah. I would like everyone to know, man, thank you. I didn't think, it was, I didn't think this could be you know, someone's life. 
And this city has given me everything. There could be none. And it's funny because, you know, people from L.A. come in and they see a cafe in Philly. And they go, oh, my God, they have me here in Philly, too. <laughs> right? <laughs> New Yorkers do that. Yeah. Bostonians do that. People from Chicago. And, like, what they don't realize is that if it weren't for this city, there wouldn't be any Lacombe. It wouldn't be. Not this one. This couldn't have happened anywhere else. You know, it's like Land of the Misfits. In 19, it was, I came here. I moved here at the end of 93, right? With two misfits, with a misfit idea and a misfit city, they knew everybody was desperate. And we did it together. Yeah. yeah. I had a friend here from out of town. We, we walked through the Fishtown Festival this weekend and we walked past. And uh, they walked past headquarters here and they said, what's that? I was like, that's Lock Lum headquarters. And they stopped and turned and said, headquarters? Here? And I'm like, yeah. I, that's what I'm saying, right? Here. <laughs> no, because they think it's a Manhattan thing in Manhattan. And I mean, the reason that is, though, is, is not on I mean, we don't do that through branding or anything like right. that. But each cafe is kind of designed to fit its neighborhood. Right, yeah. We don't have like, you know, like Starbucks, you feel like it, you can be anywhere. Yeah, yeah, just the same shit. So they feel that we're they're, they're getting what we're doing. So they feel connected to it. So we're not an outside agent coming in with just the plopping things down. But I don't think that Philly gets the credit it deserves. And I think ultimately that's why I'm saying thank you on the billboard because I go, man, Philly, Ed Rendell. You know what? Listen to this. So I'm going to start my business. You know where I went? I went right to Ed Rendell's office. He met with me the day I landed in Philly. Really? I walked in and I'd like to meet the mayor. I mean, literally, this is how naive I was. And I didn't even know Ed from, you know, the lunch the lunchroom i didn't and he brought me in i said i'm thinking about starting my business here and he went what like this ed really yeah i always remember because he had a hoagie pull it out and he was like he had he gave me half <laughs> he gave like me, literally half you walk he, so you uh, nobody walks into the mayor's office nobody yeah, yeah. at the time forgive it me it took but. me like 20 <laughs> minutes to get in there i mean they but i said hi i'm from out of town i'm thinking about putting my business here and he gave you half his hoagie he gave me half his hoagie but, the, but see, I think he's always had a hoagie down there. <laughs> so, right? I think there's probably nine more, right? But, um, and, he, and he was happy to tell me about his business action team, his mayor's business action team. And, like, and he made me feel connected. He sold me, man. Yeah. And it was, that was the beginning of it. And he, he was there every time we needed him. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my stories from the olden days. So the first 25 years went kind of fast. So I'm wondering if the uh, next 25 go any faster. Yeah. I hope not. I hope they don't go so fast. Yeah. I think you probably have learned to make it go slower. Yeah. I think that's, you know, being, being a dad is, is very helpful, you know, and, and especially the dad of my kids, they're, they're just so extraordinary that there is this, there's this, at least in my outside of work life, this changing of the guards. You know, now I get up at five in the morning to watch my, my son play hockey and just stand on the glass and watch him live it's the different adventure. different North Star. Yeah. And just like, you're, you're not even the coach anymore. You're, you're the sport network. Like when you're climbing, I'm the Sherpa, right? And it just gives you a different sense, a different perspective. The, you know, the next phase, I'd like to bring La Colombe to the rest of the world. The I, I, I'm looking very. We're looking at Asia, the whole Pacific Rim. Um, there's still Mexico, you, big parts of Europe and Canada to go. So the next phase is let's bring Philly international. If you like the show, as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. 
You can also hit up Instagram and Twitter at PodPhillyWho with questions, suggestions, feedback, whatever, just to say, hey, love to hear from you. Music by Lee Rosevere, podcast art by Lauren Carhart. A very special thanks to Todd Carmichael for being a guest on the show. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>